The Tablet Show, episode 56, with guest Billy Hollis. Recorded live Thursday, October 11th, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Billy Hollis about the design concepts around tablet applications. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Hey, Pittsburgh! Welcome to the Tablet Show! Go Steelers! Uh, I have some friends back east that would be happy to hear you say that. We're here in Pittsburgh at the Sheridan, right uh, looking out at, on the city and occasional trains that rumble by and disrupt our presentations, but we're having fun anyway, aren't we? <laughs> Reverend Billy is here. Billy Hollis. Big hand for Billy. But before we talk to Billy, we have a little business to do, don't we, Richard? Indeed, we do. So what we're going to do is just go ahead and roll the music for Better Know Framework, and uh, we'll get started. All right, sir, what do you got? Well, I went looking for some XAML-ish stuff mm-hmm. in honor of our, our esteemed guest, Mr. Billy Hollis, who taught me XAML nice. in the, in the uh, context of Silverlight. That's where I first learned it. And uh, I went and found a physics helper XAML. What? Physics helper. So you know the Farseer physics engine. Right, right. Which XNA game users use and Silverlight people use. And it's basically a way to assign momentum and weight. And, yeah, it makes and the balls bounce right. Yeah, when like objects hit each other, they bounce and then they slow down and they fall around and everything. It's a physics engine. Well, so th- somebody tried to port... Physics Helper, which is a, a CodePlex project, mm-hmm. to uh, Windows 8, mm-hmm. okay. Windows Phone 7, and all that stuff, and that didn't work all that well. So this guy made a separate version that works with Windows 8, and it's at physicshelperzaml.codeplex.com, which brings up an interesting question. What's that? Are you going to write a XAML game for Windows 8? A XAML game? That is a good question. I mean, there's actually a video here on this page. Mm -hmm. You can see, I'm holding it up for the audience. I don't know if you can see that. But there's a video on the page of them showing a Windows 8 tablet with, you know, objects and cars and people and boxes bouncing all over each other. And it's kind of fun. Because you would normally think they would work in DirectX, right? In C++. Right. But, you know, you got XAML and C Sharp and you can do stuff. So, But here's what I'm thinking. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, man, it would be really cool like when we, you know, move stuff around and slide lists and boxes around. The things go boing. I'm just thinking of the April Fool's Day joke where one day you go to swipe your screen and all the stuff slides off the end, shatters and falls. Oh, that'd be great. (laughs) That'd be awesome. If you could actually get it to fall out on the floor, it would be even better. I still like the idea of a pile of letters sitting in the corner (laughs) of your screen. It's like, oh, man, I broke my start button. Now you've done it. Somebody's going to do that. (laughs) That's a great idea. The influence that we have. 
Well, anyway, that's what I got. Again, it's at physicshelperzaml.codeplex.com. Know it, learn it, love it. Cool. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment off of show 41, and that's Errol Balkin's show on the design of mobile apps. Great show. Recall. It was a great show. And this is a comment from Arturo Molina, who we sent a .NET Rocks bug to him a few years ago. He's in Mexico mm-hmm. City. Mm-hmm. Here's his comment. Uh, great show, guys. I've been diving into usability myself, and I'm tired of creating ugly and unusable applications filled with error messages ending with an exclamation mark. Who would do that? I don't know. <laughs> one guy just said another guy in the audience. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stop that. Yeah. I agree with Errol that m- most of, of these things can't be made into patterns of software development, but are things like Jacob Nielsen's 10 heuristics for user interface design, and he provides a link, which will be on the show. Mm-hmm. And there are several other resources available to learn more about user design in general. For starters, there's a Coursera free course on human-computer interaction by Stanford University. Wow. And, get this, even at Pluralsight, you can see Billy Hollis's Fundamental Design Principles course. I've heard that's pretty good. I've heard it's really good. Uh, also, Nielsen's site itself has lots of resources that wouldn't hurt to take a look at. Keep up the good work, guys, and let's remember to make things easier for the user more than we make things easier for ourselves. Arturo, everybody's looking at me like, that guy's genius. Yeah. So, well done, sir. We completely agree. And a rare and precious tablet show mug is on its way to Mexico for you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, all you got to do is write a comment on the site at thetabletshow.com. And with that, let me introduce Billy Hollis. Welcome, Billy. Thank you, Carl. You really do not need us to read your bio again. But no, you know, let's not do that. Uh, let me just tell you my first interaction with Billy. As a, a brand new dot, uh, Microsoft Regional Director in 2000, I believe, or was it 2001? 2001, probably. Somewhere in there, yeah. So uh, .NET had just come out. This was when it was called NGWS, Next Generation Windows Services. And, uh, or next generation web services. I can't remember which one it was, hmm. but they, you know, switched it to .NET. And then we had this train the trainer event at Microsoft. So, uh, regional directors and people who are going to go out and do training, uh, for .NET had to learn it. And Billy was teaching it. Wow. Yeah. That was, was I recall that, class. that, yeah, it was, I spent about six weeks on Microsoft's campus in yeah. the summer of 2001. Yeah. Training people for the .NET developer tour. Hmm. Right. So you had, you were there at the very beginning. Of course, you had, you and Rocky had the first book on VB.NET and, uh, you really, really got into XAML and Silverlight design. But I remember even before, I'm just, you know, gushing over Billy here. Um, back in those days, uh, before, uh, .NET 2.0 came out with, or dot, I can't remember what it was, but there was some lack of, real lack of good data binding in Windows forms. And rather than, you know, wait for the next thing to come out, you rewrote the <laughs> I data did. binding system. Uh, and we used that all the way through our Windows Forms experience. I kept going to my partner saying, I think they fixed data binding now. Microsoft has. He says, no, man, uh, this is great. And if there's anything wrong with it, I can make you fix it. So, <laughs> yeah. so we're, so it's still being used in production in lots That's of places. That's so cool. You know, and that was just a part and parcel to what you could do back then. But, uh, then you f- fully embraced the XAML world with uh, Silverlight WPF, and ever since then, you've been telling people what they're doing wrong in their designs. About better, yeah, about better yeah. UX. That, that, that has resulted in changes at the neural level. 
And I'm not exaggerating. For you, you mean? For me. You me think differently now. I think differently. I look at the world differently. Hmm. I, uh, I've got seen pictures. Uh, I've seen you taking photographs of elevator panels. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's you've not normal. Me, you've seen me doing a lot of things I never would have done before. Mm. But more so, I, I, I wear different clothing now. Really? Yes. I went to my closet one day and looked at all of those shirts that they give us as speakers. Yeah. And I threw every one of them into a bag and took them down to Goodwill. Nice. Nice. Now there's a whole bunch of folks running around with tech-ed shirts. That's right. I was going to say. Right. Yeah. I, can't, I, I can't pay my mortgage, but I, I got a tech-ed shirt. And I don't wear shirts with any with a logo on them anymore. It uh-huh. doesn't feel right. Huh. Huh. So and it just came on me. The so. two guys wearing logo shirts. Yeah. yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Well, even if they're your own logos, you won't wear them? Nope. No. Nope. Nope. And all my T-shirts, I got rid of all my T-shirts with stuff on them and, and bought a bunch of plain colored T-shirts. So you're Amish, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and my clothing, yeah, I guess, because yeah. all I wear is jeans and so what's plain the, T-shirts. So what's the idea behind that? You want to own your own identity? Or are you feeling No, it's, it's it, the clutter. Yeah. I think it was the clutter that got me yeah. after a while. That if you enter the design world, and, and I, I, I think this is a positive step, actually, that you develop... An emotional revulsion to clutter. Yeah. Because wow. that helps you keep away from cluttered screens from designing them. You just don't like them when you see them. And not just screens, but websites, too. Yeah, you know, we, anything. I can't tell you how many um, potential advertisers we've given up, we've said no to, because they just want to litter our screen with little irrelevant factoids that distract our users from actually seeing the content. So... And it's just not worth $100 a year to have some cigar store putting a flashing red banner on .netrocks.com. Yeah. And, and it's it's so bad that, though I like Windows 8 in lots of ways, as soon as I go into it, I, when I put a new one on, I turn off all those live tiles. Yeah. yeah the live tiles are a little twitchy. They're, they're, a little, they're a little cluttered for me. So when are you going to wear a black turtleneck? Black turtleneck. Yeah. Well, well you know, you seem the opposite of black turtleneck designer. That seems like a pretentious uh, academic kind of uh, personality. I think that, so. I think that's it's, not you. I think it's trying to piggyback on somebody else's brand of what a designer yeah, is. Probably. And yeah, the black turtleneck guys. I, I remember the first mix. And now you got to be bald with a fedora and horn rim glasses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember seeing the black turtlenecks at the first mix conference, thinking, "Black turtlenecks in Las Vegas." <laughs> yeah, ouch. This is a desert, guys. Yeah. But no, I, 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 I try to find my own. I, I just do whatever feels right. And, and, sure. and when you get into the design world, it is strange. You look at people differently. You look at the world differently. You look at your clothes differently. You look at what kind of car you want to drive differently. It's, it's, a, it's quite an amazing change, but one that I like in general. Well, and before we get into Be Bold, which is, I think, where we're going here, um, the, the, the value of space in design is very dramatically uh, seen in your pictures that you showed of shopping uh, malls. Yeah, this is a standard part of... of, I I first developed this when I started doing content for design principles. Because a lot of the time when I discuss design principles, I do it with visuals. Mm. And the slides don't have anything but a visual, and I help people understand what what the meaning of that is. And in this case, I took two shop windows, one of which was open, holding a very expensive dress, a single mannequin there, mm. and the other which was crowded with cheap T-shirts and everything else. And, as much and stuff I, as they could cram in one As display. much stuff as they could cram in. And the test is that I tell people, look at these two very quickly and tell me which one intuitively feels to you like it's expensive goods and which mm. one's cheap goods. And, and, of course, people believe that the one that's wide open feels 
expensive and high quality. And I think that that mental image of expensive and high quality carries over to screens that are well designed. With The artists would talk about it in terms of white space, mm-hmm. but it just basically means that you have a nice balance and you don't cram too much stuff in there. So you think it might have been a little unfair to have this, the, this big space be a mannequin with a nice dress and the, the, the cheap ones be like cheap t-shirts? Like if you had a t-shirt on a, on a mannequin in a, in a spacious window and then a bunch of t-shirts all crammed together... The same stuff. I think you'd, you'd still get the same probably effect. Probably still have the that, same effect. That T-shirt that was all by itself would be considered expensive. Yeah, mm-hmm. high quality. Yeah, but all the ones crammed in together would not be. Yeah. Now you know, I've always had a sense that you know the really ugly dialogues, you know, the ones with just every control imaginable. It comes from a sense of I don't want to lose anything. I want everything to be in one place. That's because um, we were used to losing things on a regular basis. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> no, that's an absolutely true statement, and that's. Um, that's where you get a lot of resistance from users when you try to adapt an, a more uncluttered design uh, that, that they will say, no, 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 just keep everything right there on the screen. And the basic thing that they're telling you there is, if you put it somewhere else, I don't trust you that you'll be able to give me a way to easily find right, it. Right. That you don't understand my job enough to know what I need to see right now versus what I need to see later. Mm-hmm. See, there's a design principle called progressive disclosure, mm-hmm. which says that an optimal design shows people information in stages, showing them what they need to see at any given stage. Uh, and and a, a, an interface properly designed with progressive disclosure is quite a bit more intuitive and productive. But people don't trust you to produce such a design. Because in general, their experience has been, if it's not there, I can't find it. It's like object permanence when the baby sees the wall <laughs> go behind the wall, you know, is that, oh, it's, it's gone, it's gone, I'll never come back. So that, that's one of the things you have to overcome when you go in, go in with users is, is helping them understand that you, that they, that they have to develop a level of trust for you. They are right not to trust us. I also think that our, our the, the UI metaphors have gotten better. That it was really hard for the average person to handle the transition from page to page, screen to screen. And we've done a lot more in the sense of animation That's and right. motion mm. to give you confidence that what you just saw, it went that way. And if you go the other way, it'll come back. And we did, we, we put that to good use in the very first WPF application we yeah. did, which had that subliminal, oh, this screen isn't gone. It's just kind of off right. in it's space turned, somewhere. Yeah, it's turned the and page. we can bring it back. And that, I like that you can see in the Windows Store apps, you can see the edge of the next screen. Mm-hmm. So and you so know there's something more out there. Exactly. And that, we have developed lots of ways of doing that, of helping users maintain context of where they are, giving them signals and affordances that tip them off about where the things they might be interested in might be. And once they see enough of those, they start to develop the confidence that you can do it. Mm-hmm. But at first, they don't have that confidence. I, I have a thing, I mean, we, and we did this to people. You know, you'd have the tabbed view, full of controls, and when you flip to the other tab, they'd be full of controls again. When you flip back, anything you'd done on the previous page went away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, like stealing people's data entry. So they'd like, don't change the view. You know, until I right. saved that, uh, I, I don't trust you. There, well, and certainly the, 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 the state model on the web made, mm-hmm. that, yeah. made them feel that way as well. Yeah. So, so that's a big problem, but it's a problem that developers have to face because as we move to the next generation app world, where apps are expected to be mm. smaller, more self-contained, mm-hmm. handle smaller pieces, etc., then the... the, the Elements of, of acceptable design change, mm-hmm. and you just better not put a hugely crowded screen on a touch-based system. Right. You'll just 
the, and there's, there's no a need certain to. limit to what you can do. There's no, no there's need to because need to. you have virtual unlimited space. Right. You can move around up and down, left to right. Screen real estate is not expensive because you got some more of it right out there to your right. All you got to do is swish to get over That's to right. it. That's right. So you're looking, it's it's the viewport metaphor. And I think you yeah. you brought this up in a couple of, uh, uh, in Minneapolis, you brought this up. I did. Because that viewport is a, is a design pattern. Uh, I would call it an interaction pattern, a yeah. navigation pattern. I yeah. did a session at TechEd on this. Um, and the basic idea was that I sat down one day, oh, six or eight months ago, and made a, a list of about two dozen interaction patterns from the, the different apps that I had, had, had done. And also a very helpful resource was the Mobile Pattern Design Gallery. It's a book. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, I highly recommend it. But if you get it, get the Kindle version because it's in color and the print version is in black and white. So... Putting all that together, I did a session at TechEd on about two dozen different interaction patterns and navigation patterns with the idea that this would be a checklist. When you get ready to do a a really new design for an app, you should know what your possibilities are in order to do interesting navigation or interesting interaction. And you might use different patterns for different parts of the application. And and not only that, I broke it down into some fairly fine-grained stuff. Sometimes it's helpful just to have... Uh, terms about these things. So what do we call the desktop metaphor? One is, well, that's in this world, that's called a launch pad. Okay. We, there are, there are lots of variations on that launch pad, but you go a little deeper than that and you realize that sometimes the launch pad is centered around what applications can I launch? Mm-hmm. Other times it's centered around what actions can I do? Mm. If you've used Camtasia. Right. Mm-hmm. Camtasia has an action-oriented launch pad. Yep. Other times, it's centered around what entities do I want to work with. Mm-hmm. When we did our Staff Links app, we had an entity-centric launch pad. So I tried to cover that plus viewports and timelines and some of the other major patterns that people would want to, to consider when they were looking at new apps, along with some advice about when you ought to really consider this pattern seriously and when it probably isn't a good idea or cautions about using it. So I, I, that's a checklist people can use. And I'm, I'm hoping, if I can, to... Uh, that's already a part of my, my, my on-site course in design principles. I hope to eventually get some plural site content on that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, one of the things that I've thought about a lot lately is how we project how uh, those less experienced with computers will take to the new Windows 8 metaphors and the Windows Store apps. Um, and we have done this with different versions of Windows. We've done it with different technologies. We did this with the ribbon, right? Mm-hmm. Remember when yeah, we saw the ribbon on Microsoft Office? We were like, oh, I get that, but Mama Franklin's not going to get that. You know, They're going to freak out, where's my stuff? And it turns out that people love the ribbon. And, and they find it much easier because it's categorized, much easier. Well, it was logical, almost like the, the less things. experienced you were with Office, the better you did with the ribbon. And that's, that's exactly right. my point. And so the thing, that, the thing that I'm finding is the biggest pushback I'm hearing uh, on Windows 8 comes from the veterans of the industry, Com- comes from the guys who, who have learned, uh, you know, the cruft so much, and now it's gone, that we're like, oh, my God, you know, the the old timers are, aren't going to know what to do with it, and this. I don't know that they're ever going to, to to necessarily learn to love it. I think they'll learn to to get along with it. But it's like my experience with the iPad. I've owned an iPad for a bit over two years, mm-hmm. yeah, and I don't like it much. But I realize it's not designed for me. Right. Yeah. It frustrates me because of its limitations. Right. Sure. But ninety whatever percent of its own of the owners of the iPad are not frustrated by those limitations, right. so they love it. 
Uh, I mean, I talked to people, and I, I, I was re referring earlier tonight to the fact that I often ask people a question if, if I find out that they're an iPad owner, to ask them, why did you get it? What did you think you were going to do when, when you walked in the store and whipped out your credit card? And one of the most common answers is, I don't know. Nice. I just liked it. Yeah. And, and so, obviously, it's reaching people at a certain psychological level that's very prominent, very important. And mm -hmm. we, as advanced people, need to understand that. Hopefully, right. Windows 8 will accomplish some of that same things, even though we may not feel that it suits us. I still don't like the ribbon. Yeah. Because it, it doesn't suit me, and I realize that there are people who do. Mm -hmm. I used Word from version 1 for Windows. I'm sorry, version 2 for DOS. I've been wow. using Word that long. <laughs> so, yeah, I get to the ribbon, and I can't find anything. I yeah. do believe the ribbon would be somewhat improved if it had a find capability mm -hmm. that would light up the things. But most people don't seem to care. They, yeah. they stumble around on the ribbon until they find what they want. They use about... How many things on the ribbon do you think the average yeah, person has? Yeah, 5%, maybe. And, and they're happy with it. They can find the things they want, and they're okay with it. Even in application software, I've had clients use the ribbon and have that class of users love it. So Yeah, and so you can see that when you hand an iPad or even a Windows phone or, or a you know, Windows tablet. I handed my original tablet that I got to build to my 9-year-old because she's the acid test for everything. And she was... She was in on all the games. Remember the games they loaded on there that all the college students, uh, you know, I mean, you know this, but they had like a bunch of college students come in and, and develop all these games and stuff. And they put them all on yeah. the build tablet. And she was in there. She was playing these games and she was doing stuff and she got the swiping back and forth. And I didn't have to tell her anything. She got it. So the, the goal is to be able to make these, um, you know, dummy-proof kind of uh, apps that people can just use. And, you know, it's like getting in a car. Where's the ignition? I know it's usually right there under the steering yeah. wheel. And so we've, we've reached a point where we just spread out to so many different people. My 76-year-old my mom does online banking. Mm -hmm. And so we have to accommodate that great mass of people. Yeah. Now, one of the questions in my mind is, okay, we do that. That's fine. But there are the 5 to 10% of people who are doing a lot more production-oriented stuff, mm -hmm. I think, I hope that some of the refinement we see in future versions will aim at least partially. Some of the, the, the changes, refinements, innovations that to come will target those people. But for the first round, it's pretty clear we've got to get the masses mm -hmm. on board. This portion of the Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash free stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash free stuff now and take full advantage of the available free of charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting the Tablet Show. I had this thought. I don't know if you remember this, Billy, but uh, a few, several years ago, I had an idea to 
have a, a control that uses an extender provider, I think, if I'm reaching back, to allow um, controls and blocks of controls, user controls, menu options, or whatever, to be turned on and off based on a, a beginner, uh, intermediate, and an advanced level or a number of levels that you have. So when you basically you build three or four different levels of UI in your application, and uh, but it's all declarative about what each level uses. That's you don't right. have to develop completely separate screens. That's right, and all it was was just an extender provider which attaches to properties of existing controls. So each control got a, a level, and you could set it to one, two, three, four, or whatever. And then when you set this master switch, like all of those things became enabled in. in uh, uh, so, it, but basically, the idea was that you could start an app in a in a sort of a beginner mode where you weren't overwhelming the user, where everything was sort of intuitive, and and then flip on another switch, and then you can just uh, uh, sort of you know it, it, introduce new features and and new UI as it gets more complex. Well, and and I hope that our platforms will start to support some of those things yeah. uh, because we we're at a stage where. In order for uh, for this particular platform to really reach its potential, we have to do some things that the other platforms have done too. We have to have a little bit more of an experimental approach mm-hmm. about what what's going to work for the users. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the, the mindset to me in the Microsoft world is that we have one class of users and we have one way of doing it, sure. and we have one. Uh, it I cringe every time I hear a team talk about the prototype. Yeah. Okay. Because it's right. that, because I know what that means. That means that they have this one size fits all idea in their head, and that they're just they're going to start in one direction, and they're going to trim around the edges on that, and they're going to keep refining it. And it, when when we had fewer degrees of freedom, we probably could get away with that. We we can't get away with it now. Well, we used to have design guidance like this, right? I mean, Microsoft once upon a time gave us the MDI design document. The file goes here, and the help goes there. The toolbar goes here. Right. The status bar goes there, and we knew where to put stuff. And just there just weren't that. There, well, there wasn't that much in the underlying UI stack mm-hmm. that allowed variation from that. That was the best we could do with what the technology allowed us. But now we have animation and we have styling and we have But we also have design transformation. guidelines. We have yeah. design guidelines. We do have design guidelines and they take us to a certain point. Uh, and, and they are valuable and helpful. Sure. I, I, no Windows 8 developer should go into that world worrying about becoming an expert on typography. Mm-hmm. Because the design guidelines will just tell you everything you want to know. Right. You can read about three paragraphs of stuff on how to do typography in Windows 8. Mm-hmm. In the design guidelines, which are posted, I think you posted a link earlier tonight yep. about those. Um, and, and then you know everything you need to know. You are, you are piggybacking on, you are leveraging the expertise of people who have spent their lives understanding and exploring typography. So the design guidelines will help us with certain things there. Certain kinds of standard data, um, that that swishy set of blocks of of individual items Mm -hmm. is going to work for some portion of the kind of apps we do. But then, see, I come at this from the attitude of someone who spent a lot of time in healthcare, where the data is very complex and rich, Mm -hmm. and it has to be extremely accessible and extremely intuitive and understandable. And so there are certainly portions, and I think it's open to argument about how big this space is, but there are portions where those design guidelines don't tell us everything we need to know, and we're going to have to push and experiment beyond them. Yep. I totally agree. Um, Getting into this idea of being bold and experimenting, uh, it, th- this was another one of your uh, your talking points, that we, we really have to trust that 
our experiences are valuable and use those experiences to, uh, to, to, to bring forth something that's unique to us and stop listening to the masses. You know, sort of. Well, it's not that you stop listening to them, it's that you listen to them in a different way. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, and here's. I, you assign more weight to your own uh, observations and less to, to what everybody right. else and is doing, I, I think. You know, I, I did some of the marriage analogies earlier. Mm-hmm. I guess I probably should do that. The first marriage analogy first and then get to the analogy that addresses your point. Yeah. Because I was talking earlier about that all the changes that we've got to do, and I, I try to impress upon people when I, crowds, when I begin talking about this, that there's change and there's change. Okay. <laughs> there's, yeah, we live with change all the time. And I, I explain it to people outside the industry by saying, well, imagine as if uh, software development were like a marriage. Every two years, your spouse would just, you wake up with somebody who was changed. Mm-hmm. You know, 20 pounds heavier, different color hair, mm-hmm. slightly different personality, and you have to do a fair amount of adaptation. Mm-hmm. And then two years later, changes again. Mm-hmm. That's the continuous nature of the change that we see. But now, the, in the new modern app era, plus all the cloud stuff we have to worry about, plus how our application architectures are changing and leveraging metadata, no, we're beyond that kind of change. Mm-hmm. The kind of change now I compare to, you wake up one morning, you're married to a reptilian alien. <laughs> okay? You, you're, you don't, you look over at her, you don't even know how to have sex with this, with her. You don't, you don't even know if it's a her. It's, that's the kind of change, and we saw that change back in the 80s, mm-hmm. where the people who were accustomed to that mini mainframe COBOL way of right. looking at things mm-hmm. had their world just completely yeah. turned upside that, down. From batch processing to actual interactive screens. Yeah. To, to GUIs. But and GUIs and relational databases and, and all the things that hit sure. them, we're being hit with a similar set of things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the way I, I communicate the, the whole idea of how much change we're going to do. And uh, for users, I use a kind of a different marriage analogy and when it comes to why you should be bold. Why do you want to be bold? Well, here's the thing. You, you put a new system in somebody's hand, in your user's hands, and it's just fiddling around the edges. That's like them waking up with a spouse that's just changed in minor ways that are unpredictable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it, it, it's, they don't see any benefits. They only see risk. Yeah, just, you've just annoyed me, really. You, yeah, you've made me learn new things, and I don't see any particular benefit right. for it. Okay, but suppose you could have them wake up with somebody who had every good characteristic in their spouse, but was looked like a supermodel and was 20 points higher on the IQ scale and and what you know first thing out of her mouth in the morning was hey baby you know it's that kind of <laughs> right okay you it's it's somebody so compelling that you're pretty happy that it's different it's yeah. a different person has everything you ever ever liked but is just better that's that's the stage you're trying to reach when you go out with a new system in this era you're trying to to reach a point where when you show people the new version of your application even just in prototype form their jaws drop mm. And believe me, it can happen. I, I remember when we rolled out Staffflinks at a trade show, mm-hmm. a, a human resources trade show, demoing it for people and watching the jaws drop. Mm. I saw this in a company I worked with this year where they had struggled for years to trim around the edges mm-hmm. on the software they were doing. They did a Windows Forms version that never did get fully adopted. They did a WPF version that just 
They tried five different iterations, cycles, and the users just, no, no, no. no. Now, they've just five iterations of the same thing, but or did they try five different No, different. They tried a ribbon, for example. Okay. And, and they kept doing different things, but it just wasn't interesting or compelling or obviously any better for the users. Mm -hmm. So the users just kept saying, we don't like this, we don't want it. And, and when you got, they had 9,000 users. Ouch. When you got that many, you, you better produce something really good. Right. So we spent a process over a span of months. I spent six or eight weeks there and went back to a blank sheet of paper. I sat with users for days just watching what they did mm -hmm. and understanding where their bottlenecks were and where their frustrations in the existing system were. And then went back to a blank page and produced something that was a complete and total departure. So from was, what they'd ever was, done Is this before. sort of a moment of gestalt for you? Just yeah. observing all that data and you suddenly have a vision of a different way to do it? You, you get inside their minds and you understand. Well, it's not that you see the way. Mm -hmm. You see several possible ways okay. that might work a lot better. And so you explore all of them. See, that's the problem I have with the prototype. Right. It's, it's as if there's this vast plane with hills on it. And if you do the prototype, you are climbing one hill to see how high it is. Right. And man, there's all these other hills out there in the fog, if you don't go out there and find them and climb them too, you won't know what the tallest hill is. Sure. There might be a hill that's 10 times as tall, 10 times better mm -hmm. than the one you have, but you have to go out there and explore that design space to find it. I think it's tough once you've made it. a prototype to make of something that looks any different from the prototype you've already made. It is pretty hard, but it's a discipline. It can be learned. Mm -hmm. you, you, you learn to fool yourself in a sense that you, you do it, you put it aside and say, let's pretend that the users don't like it. Or the lawyers don't like it, mm -hmm. or something. Let's do something explicitly this, this different. This is not an option. And in yeah. fact, it's so much not an option, we have to do something that's utterly different from that. And that is one of the principles that people don't get about design, is that it, you actually sometimes you need to impose a constraint sure. to break loose from the past. Mm -hmm. yes. One of the exercises I do in my class, <laughs> this is, and, and people, this is the, the most liked exercise hmm. in my design class, hmm. is I have people at the very beginning sketch uh, uh, the main screen from the app they've been working on. Mm -hmm. And then I put up a slide that's basically a bunch of rectangles. <laughs> and I go, okay, how, is this your... And yeah, yeah okay, that's, that's my screen. And then everybody gets an envelope. It's sealed. At the time the exercise begins, they open the envelope. Each person has one of six curved shapes in the envelope. Hmm. Now they are required to redesign that screen from scratch. And the curved shape must be a non-trivial part of their design. Hmm. Mm -hmm. They're forced to adopt that constraint of right. working this thing in somewhere. And that breaks them free of the rectangular. They can't yeah. possibly do a rectangular design right. Right. and satisfy the constraint. Now, for some people, that breaks them loose. And, and that really... Uh, the, ad adopting constraints like that, that constraint of, I suppose I can't use this... Um, there, I, I have a, I have a, I have a card game mm -hmm. that I give people. It's printed on business card stock, and that that at certain points in the design, they're supposed to pick a card and do what the card tells them, like a monopoly thing. Sure. And one of the cards says, "You've acquired some users who are six years old. Modify your design <laughs> to accommodate them." Okay, so it's just things like that to force people to explore some new channels. Right. And that's where the key is for adapting to this new world in terms of user experience. If there's any one phrase that uh, iconizes the, this change and what these new applications are, I think, 
It's less is more. Would yeah. you agree? I think that's a that's a pretty good way. That's about as concise a way yeah. of summing it up as possible. And it's not just software that goes undergoes this transformation. Um, uh, fashion undergoes this transformation. Uh, uh, architecture does. Uh, music certainly does. Do you know that? Um, does it, I don't know. I'll tell you a jazz story. So in the fifties, bebop was huge. Uh, moving from big band music to soloing, um, you know, Louis Armstrong sort of brought everybody into soloing. But then you have Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker, and these guys were playing bop. It was real fast. It was like it's like how many notes can you possibly play? I'm getting paid by the note, kind of jazz, right? And so there was this young guy who would come up and play with them named Miles Davis. And most of the time, you know, he'd sit back and they'd go blow their brains out. Time for him to take a solo. Right? And everybody's like, what the hell is this guy? He can't play. <laughs> right? But he was understating. And, and his attitude was like, you know what? I can't play that fast. Screw you guys. I'm going to play what I want to play, and I'm going to deliberately put more space in my solos, and I'm going to play better. And so he went up against the convention, right? More space, less is more. I mean, all that less is more thing in the whole music industry comes from Miles Davis. 1959, he came out with his album, Kind of Blue. And this is the number one selling jazz album of all time, Kind of Blue. And, you know, you've probably heard some of his tunes. They start with a real slow but steady progression. And his most famous line is like, like three notes. And, you know, I could see, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and, and, and uh, you know, Charlie Parker going, hmm. Well, see, so well, he's not really playing all that much. Well, the complexity sometimes appeals because of the novelty. If you're going to be complex, the combinatorics suggest that you can come up with lots of ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. So we're fascinated by people who line up dominoes and do weird things, or Rube Goldberg kind of complex things. Mm -hmm. yeah. we're, we're fascinated by it, but that's not what we want to use every day. I don't want my car to require me to you know, trace my finger in some weird maze to get the car started. Yeah. Right. I want to put in the key and go. And so we have to understand that we're producing software. And, and, and that means that that sparseness, trimming it down to what they need, has very high value for them. Mm -hmm. And there are design principles that explain all of this that talk about if you've got too many items, you slow down people in finding the other items. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the error rates start to go up under mm -hmm. certain crowded conditions. And of course, we've got the very fact that if you're going to do a touch based system, you just can't crowd the stuff too close together because yep. your fingerprints of yeah, a certain size. Well, they've created a constraint there. Yeah, you that's a constraint. You can't the screen because the interface won't allow it. You just it. can't. And you look at the phone, for example. I, I use a Windows phone. Mm -hmm. the, st the items in a list have a certain spacing that the typical developer today would regard as too big. Right. But on the Windows phone, it's it's good. It's right. And, and that spacing and that openness and that simplicity, people learn to love it. Mm-hmm. That's and start the, to demand it. And start to demand it. That's some of where the iDevices kind of pulled people in. Right, yeah. Is they didn't see that anywhere else. Mm -hmm. 
And here's the problem, you see. If you go ask people what they want, they'll never tell you that. They won't. No. I, don't, I want less on the screen. They will never say, I no. want you to make it simpler they, and more. No. They'll always say, well, I've got to, could you make it do this, this feature? Right. And they might use it once every two years. Yeah. Right. And so that that's why I, I, it's, it's a contradiction in some sense. I want to listen to users. I want to get inside their minds. Mm-hmm. I want to understand their jobs in some respects even better than they do. But that does not mean sitting with the user and saying, give me your laundry list of stuff. Sure. Right. And let me, that's the way most teams do it today. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is considerably less than optimal. In many cases, it produces the worst possible results. Well, I've got to think if you're going to figure out a great user interaction, you have to watch users interact. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. You must understand their flow at an intuitive level, you'll see things they would never think to tell you. Right. You will find out how they actually use the software. Well, it instead gets of you're fresh-eyed, too. Watching their that's workflow, right. you're going to pick up on things they don't even notice anymore. And, and it turns out, I go into these places to do this kind of work, and it's very common that I, I start out saying, I need to go observe the users for three days or whatever, mm-hmm. depending on the complexity. And somebody says, well, we can explain everything to you. Right. Let, let us, we could just have an afternoon meeting and I can explain all of this yeah, stuff to you. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, I've been watching the users for years. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem is that that person has filtered what he, what the user's actions and everything through the own lens, his own lens, right, right. which very often is stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. So, He's he's got a picture of what he thinks the users do, mm-hmm. and every time I go in there, see, I listen so to him. Projecting just, his old stuff onto right. them, which That's is it. what we do. And, and I I listen to them out of politeness because you know they they are paying me to sit there and do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm listening to them, but but every time I do this, when I actually go to the users, I find out all kinds of things that are in opposition to what these guys have told mm-hmm. me. Yeah. So I will not accept a gig, an engagement to do design in which I am expected to have the users needs filtered through somebody. Right. I will not accept such a gig. Billy, we are just about out of time. Is there any last-minute pearl of wisdom you want to drop on our Pittsburgh audience and our wider listener audience? Oh, gosh. That's pearl of wisdom at the very end? I mean, I don't... I don't. <laughs> just a pearl, not a big rock. Yeah, if... if uh, I, that, that's a really good question. I, one thing that I did talk about earlier that, that I, I like to stress a lot is um, people tend to... But, the i the the i devices are beautiful. Mm-hmm. Windows eight, the cosmetics are gorgeous. Did you notice that they added gradients in yeah. RTM on the on the tiles? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't notice. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And and this was a sticking point with me because I felt like they were underusing gradients. Gradients produce a natural good cosmetic feel mm-hmm. that monochrome does not. So these things are beautiful. And one of the most common mistakes I see people make when they enter this world is to say beauty equals good design. Mm. And one of the things I want to explain to you, that's the most common mistake I see. And I, I want to tell people, don't, don't make that equivalence. Beauty is important. Mm-hmm. And good design is certainly beautiful. Beauty, good design is beautiful. Good design is elegant, mm. which is kind of a different thing mm-hmm. from beauty. Beauty is important because first impressions matter. When people see things, they form a first impression in a few seconds, the same way they form a first impression of a person. And they give a beautiful interface more chances, just like they give an attractive person more chances. Mm-hmm. There's no question about that. But if you've ever known somebody who was beautiful, if you've ever dated somebody who was beautiful and turned out to be a jerk of whatever sort. Right. Okay. So the attractiveness will only, only take you so far. Don't believe that learning the attractive part of design 
is all, or, or subcontracting that to somebody else, delegating that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Don't believe that. You have to get into it deeply enough to understand the interaction, mm -hmm. and the interaction goes way beyond that. All right. Billy Hollis, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. And we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show. Yeah.